Hey, Hit Factory listeners, this is Aaron. If you're enjoying and want even more Hit Factory, including the entirety of this episode, consider becoming a patron of the show at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. For just $5 per month, you'll get access to our premium biweekly episodes, bonus episodes, interviews, polls, and a lot more. Thanks for listening and supporting. Aside from, I think, The Last Boy Scout, I think this movie might have the most recently divorced guy energy of, <laughs> of anything I've seen in the 90s. And, you know, as we were watching it, we were trying to, you know, reverse engineer and puzzle piece together all the tumult of James Cameron's relationships in the early 90s. And it's like, was he actually going through a breakup here? Had he had he separated from Bigelow yet? Was he with Linda Hamilton? Um, it turns out like it, it's pretty close to. I think the the conclusion of one of those relationships and the start of another. Likewise with The Abyss, I guess, also being kind of a, a divorce movie as well. <laughs> well, well, certainly Tom Arnold's character embodies the the divorced guy perspective um, in this one. I mean, his character uh, has so... I mean, his character is at least twice divorced. Um, he uh, really uh, understands what divorced... Uh, divorced guy energy uh, is supposed to look like um arnold you know being a guy who is completely unaware of the irony of the fact that he's off dancing sexy tangos with tia carrera um but doesn't see that in any way in parallel to like what his own wife is going through when she he discovers she's having an affair i mean it's it's a it's uh remarkable yeah divorce uh divorce energy throughout there was a um I I hate when we do this what I'm about to do but here I go. Uh there was a tweet worst worst <laughs> way to start a sentence. Um there was a tweet at one point that was going around that Aaron and I were talking about when we were um when we were discussing this movie um about uh the Mission Impossible uh movie. I think it's the third one, right? With Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um MI3, the JJ Abrams one. Yes. And someone was sort of like, you know, mock recreating the the pitch around around the table for this movie. And it was like, you know, what if a spy had a wife? And I was thinking about that question. I was like, yes, this movie is like asking the question, what if a spy had a wife? And what if that wife was a human being? Often when we talk about movies from this era, you know, we we come back to this idea that even directors who aren't making explicit political statements are obviously always making political statements. That's what art is, right? Um, uh, to a certain extent, always. And and I couldn't help but read the message of this film as one that is saying, your problem is not uh, sort of the crushing weight of uh, of capitalism and its monotony and its sort of alienation from anything uh, human or connective, it's that you don't and have yet have not yet felt uh, the thrill of you know espionage and like uh, a nuclear missile uh, in between your thighs yet, and and that in order for a family to be happy, healthy, functioning, all of them must participate quite literally in the military project of of the United States. <laughs> this is like a, a thought, but also a, a question for the panel. Is this Cameron's 
pro-military movie. It's funny, you know, because we had the same conversation when we talked about T2, which is, you know, it it is uh, refreshingly anti-cop and anti-military-industrial like uh, complex. But there is something at the heart of it that is about the resolution of the nuclear family, right? Like finding your mother figure, finding your father figure, having the child at the center of it. And all of it sort of manifests and, and culminates around the threat of nuclear apocalypse, right? There's like a very distinct kind of fear that's still carrying over from, from the Cold War era into the early 90s um, and somewhat in this movie too. Interestingly, you know, the, the thing that I feel like he, he keeps getting to with these sort of family projects is this emphasis on everybody having utility, right? Like mm-hmm. everyone having like a sort of function within that unit. And so we get that that kind of tacked on scene in this movie where Eliza Dushku has to, you know, be the person to like steal the key and and instigate the chase and and everyone has to play their part in this post me too era <laughs> there has been as i noticed doing research for this episode um a considerable amount of reevaluation about true lies um i i found no less than four like major publications uh, you know publishing retrospectives of of this film all written by men notably all written in the trump years also notably um that use phrases like or words like indefensible, irredeemable, hateful. Um, there was one even for The Guardian that I think said that uh, he found this movie uh, more vile and hateful towards women than anything that Lars von Trier has ever put on screen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> but, you know, at, and it's all. <laughs> just so performative. It's, I just, it's. Oh yeah, this movie. I, I, like I said, this this movie is great. The fact that people still watch fucking Austin Powers, which is one of like just the <laughs> l- l- yes. least least funny, most like ham fisted um, parodies of a type of spy movie that actually was never made in the first place, you know. Uh, it, but like, aren't watching this movie, which is for its flaws, uh, which we've discussed, is a for the at least three quarters of its running, a pitch perfect um, parody of a spy movie um, of an action thriller um, is criminal. It's just a sh- it's just a shame. And the and the actors in this movie do turn in great performances. And the the problematic aspects of the material, the things that make us uncomfortable about it now, are interesting as are interesting as artifacts, even if we deplore them, I think. Yes. Like, things can be reprehensible and and also interesting. Um. Mm-hmm. Often. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, often. Yeah. I, you know, and I think that this is one of my least favorite impulses of, like, the current moment, which is to admonish and to try to, like, disappear anything that doesn't fit into our sort of, like... Uh, newly ordained sense of rightness and purity. That's a very focus grouped kind of way of looking at movies and how they're made now, sort of uh, giving all of those people like this, the the barest of uh, most meager sort of breadcrumbs to say like, look, we're doing things right. We're not being bad. Um, and I, I, yeah, I think it's, I think it's improper. I think it's wrong to look at art from any generation, even stuff, as you said, which is reprehensible, has challenging or problematic impulses and say like that thing 
can't be watched or shouldn't be watched or we should we should be scrubbing this thing from from uh, our collective memory well and the automatic rejection and i maybe what i'm about to say is you know something that's cancelable um i'm gonna pull your feminist card for this episode i don't have one actually (laughs) um the automatic rejection of a scene like the striptease scene with Jamie Lee Curtis as a fundamentally sexist without interrogating, as you say, Jacob, the things that are interesting about it and that make it more nuanced than just a woman in underwear dancing for a man. That to me is what's problematic. Like that automatic sort of like acid reflux to a thing that's saying, uh, you know, any ways in which uh, we are um, asking a woman to uh, perform sexuality is, uh, is, you know, by default, leaving her without agency, I think is just like, stupid to begin with, but also um, blatantly wrong in many cases. And I'm not saying that there isn't like sexual exploitation happening, uh, the sexualizing and objectification of women's bodies on a regular basis. But um, I think to just patently say across the board, like scenes like this are the problem. Um, this misses the point.